Does anybody have any questions or thoughts from the past? Yes. Um, you know when you made that uh, sideways why you were talking about that? My famous sideways why? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I understood what you were talking about. You made enough why, but didn't you mean, I can say it right, that um, we're in regular consciousness and we can go to super consciousness and It's definitely yes, exactly. It's very fluid. But and also that specific illustration was designed to show that when you withdraw from your normal consciousness, whether you sink or rise depends on the, how much energy you put out at that point. And that's why it's the why at the you know the stem and the junction like this. <laughs> yeah. Because this is ordinary, and showing that it's a junction point where you choose rather than, as you were saying, three steps like that. Because then it's just more confusing. That's also why when you're in subconscious, it directly influences this. When you're in superconscious, it directly influences the subconscious because they actually link. Whereas normally you would think it would have to go through this middle strata. But it isn't. That's why to meditate just before you go to bed, to meditate just as soon as you wake up are all very helpful because... The more you can pour superconscious into subconscious, remembering that the conscious is just the battleground between those two forces, and the more you essentially convert subconscious into superconscious, the more the battleground, the conflict resolves, which is what we're talking about in this chapter too when we talk about the, two, the polarity of the spine, the downward pulling and the upward lifting energy. That's the superconscious versus subconscious also, and that's the polarity that we live with. And Last week we talked about how you convert that polarity by um, reprogramming the subconscious mind, essentially, because the subconscious mind is just the receptacle. Fill it with a new set of uh, prejudices, and it'll feed you those prejudices. It doesn't feed you. It doesn't create anything. It merely reflects. Someone after class, um, forgive me, I can't remember exactly which one of you it was, but came up to me and, and said with a lot of force, it was very, very gratifying, um, Yes, I remember who it was now. Um, just making the statement, the appreciation of the fact that who we are is entirely fluid, that there's no fixed reality to our nature. And that, that's everything on the spiritual path. Because once you understand that what you call yourself is really your consciousness and that your consciousness is entirely fluid, there's no fixed reality to it. It just simply is whatever your focus is and whatever your habits are. The magnitude of that, it's the, mag- the, the implications of that are infinite. The magnitude of that is total. Once you get that, you sort of get everything. It's all consciousness. And consciousness is just, for anybody who's ever taken a consciousness-altering drug, legal or otherwise, um, realizes that you just flip the balance and then the entire world is different. You know, I mean, a, a glass of wine uh, changes your perception of reality. Reality is different when you're under the influence of anything. But what that shows you is not merely that, that your brain has responsiveness to chemicals, but that your whole perception of reality is arbitrary. <laughs> now, that's a very interesting point, because then if you can influence your consciousness, you've influenced all of reality. And in the chapters the 9 and 10 today, we really go into that a lot. And, and Swami starts trying to explain to us how to influence it, what are the keys to influencing it, what are the techniques for influencing it, uh, 
And, and once you begin to really get this, you figure, why should I spend my time doing anything else? Because everything else emanates from my state of consciousness. If I work first on my consciousness, then everything else that I desire, wealth, fame, fortune, happiness, love, success, it's all a result. Comes the adage, don't worry about anything, just meditate. Because <laughs> meditation affects your consciousness, everything else is different. Right, any other questions or thoughts before we go on? All right. Um, the chapter we're talking about is where to concentrate today. And of course, again, as I've said so many times, this is a handbook for meditation designed to teach people who don't know how to meditate how and why. And so what he wants to talk about is how does the energy flow in the body, in the subtle body, and how can we influence it? Again, it's all very practical. So um, he starts about describing um, the basic polarity that all of us live with, that we all experience, which is this sense of being pulled in two directions. Everybody knows that there's a part of us that wants to go forward, however we define that, and then there's always it's sort of a kind of internal enemy that also is trying to make us go the other way. Whether we're talking about soul aspiration, exercise, diet, concentration at work, almost no one lives without this sense of conflict. I remember a friend of mine was sort of extremely famous for her constant failed attempts to get up early in the morning. She always wanted to get up early in the morning. She almost never succeeded. For years in her life, she would set her alarm clock at 4.30 and get up at 6 on a regular basis. And uh, one night, uh, once I spent the night with her, and she had this very large platform bed where she usually slept with her husband, but he was out of town, so we both shared this very large bed. At 5 in the morning, her cat jumped on my chest. And I was totally sound asleep, completely subconscious. I went from a dead sleep to being wide awake, and I woke up and I grabbed the cat like this and I turned to her and I said, that's a hell of a thing to teach your cat. And I threw the cat on the floor like that. <laughs> she said, we like it. You know? <laughs> this all happened, you know, in the split second from sleep to wakefulness like that. But it's just, getting up in the morning is a very typical example. One part of you just knows that if you just did it, you would be so much better off. <laughs> For years of my life, I lived in a, a group in the monastic portion of Ananda. At that time, we had a formal monastic order, a celibate monastic order, more traditional than the household order we have now. And I shared my life with about, it varied from eight to 25 other girls. And every morning at 5.30, we would meditate in our little teepee temple. Every morning at uh, 5 o'clock, I think the bell would go off. Sometimes I even had to, I, I often was the bell ringer. I developed the capacity to get all the way out of bed, go outside in the cold, ring the bell, and go, to, go back to bed without ever waking up. <laughs> but not often, because the, um, there was a very strong force compelling us all to get up and meditate together. But, but rain or shine, snow or sleet, we would always energize, do the energization exercises, which Swami refers to in here, outside in front of our teepee temple uh, before we go in to meditate. And I knew that if I could just get out there to do those energization exercises, by the time I was halfway through, I would be, I would be wake, awake, and by the time I was finished, I'd be wide awake. 
And if I could just get that far, you know, it's still true. If I can just get up and get out onto my balcony and do my energization exercises, I'll be awake. Almost always. In fact, my rule of thumb is if I'm still asleep at that point, I can go back to bed. Because <laughs> so, I'm, I'm not a good, I'm not a person who can meditate and be asleep at the same time. It just doesn't work for me at all. But it's it just, but still there would be always this uh, draw the other direction. Just while I'm on the question of getting up early, um, during the early years of Ananda, I'm talking about the 70s, we were exceedingly poor. And I know now when people talk about being poor, um, I, I mean poor, like no money, you know the concept, like no money, not just like an IRA we can tap later or something like that, I mean like no money. And we had just enough money, most of us, to buy propane tanks to heat our trailers and to buy food for the month. I literally got $50 a month, which at that time was enough. You just never bought anything. It was very simple, except food and heat. And one man who was particularly both broke and frugal um, used to get himself up in this way. We lived out in the woods, too, and most of us had no electricity. It was a very, very simple life. And he, as soon as his alarm would go off in the morning, he would turn on his flashlight and throw it across the room. And then he would have to lie in bed watching his batteries expire. <laughs> Which was not a small financial problem. <laughs> and that would generally force him to get up because he couldn't stand to waste the batteries. <laughs> and then he knew once he got himself out of bed, then that would, like, his energy would be in motion and he would have a chance of winning the battle. Oh, you're, I'm now on these stories. One more story. I used to have a very tiny trailer and I would meditate. It was it was cold and you know it's nice to meditate when it's cold and and besides you don't like to spend more money on propane than you have to so I used to meditate in a down sleeping bag which uh, one of those bags you know I pull it right up and you you all know you all who live there just put your face out <laughs> and I would sit on a a bench and oftentimes I'd stick the if it was a nice day I'd stick the sleeping bag out on the clothesline just to air out from time to time because I also used it as a bed cover and. Uh, Somehow or another, I guess, I, I was using my mala, my beads that we do our kriya on, inside the sleeping bag, and somehow I must have left it at the bottom. And I hung the thing out without realizing that I, my mala had fallen on the ground, and it was about 15 feet from the door of my trailer. And Swamiji, who didn't often come by where I was living, but occasionally would, that afternoon he happened to come by and he saw my mala there just without missing a beat. He picked it up and said, bad meditation? <laughs> so, you know, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> having said all that, which is actually on point, what we're really talking about is we all experience this dichotomy, don't we? There's part of us that's, and, and there's a, it's not a passive thing and it's not an intellectual thing. There's an actual force at work. And in this particular chapter, um, Swamiji really describes, uh, and, and this is classic yoga, how and what this force is. And he's talking about the vrittis in the spine and how the, he uses this wonderful phrase, the spine is the extension of the subconscious. Okay, And the picture that we're working with here. Is, is how, what we're really working with is an explanation of what karma is and how karma works. And since the word karma has kind of come into the English vocabulary now, English is such a wonderfully inviting language. It just sort of finds words that it likes and it just takes them in. 
And a, a number of these Sanskrit words like karma and chakra and guru have become uh, absorbed into the language in their own unique style because there are no English equivalents. Well, karma is... Uh, we want to talk about it here. Is a Karma is cause and effect as it is manifested in human life. And when we speak of someone's karma, what we're really talking about is the momentum of energy that they have set in motion that's going to, re- that's going to bring about a certain result. Uh, it's a scientific principle, you know, cause and effect is, you see it everywhere. And it acts itself out because nature's laws are all pervasive. It acts itself out in human life as well. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. What, what do they say? What goes around comes around, whatever that exactly sort of means. But it's just the understanding that people have, the common sense observation that what you put out is what comes back to you. And, but when we start talking about karma, we also often talk about you know, spans of many years, <clears throat> or even more we start talking about spans of many incarnations. And it gets to be like a very serious question, like how does this whole system work? And uh, what Swami is describing here is, a, is the very, uh, a few very simple realities which are directly related to meditation because what happens to us when we try to meditate is we sit down and we try to focus our attention upward and then there's all these things that pull our attention downward. Isn't that so? You get, you immediately, I remember a very interesting meditation one class that I taught. Um, after the first class when we taught everybody to do the Hong Saw technique and to watch the breath and to practice meditation, we get together on the second class and we say, how did it go? And people begin, the people in that particular class were very expressive. Just to look or to sit? Hello, Maria. Hello, Christina. Hi, welcome. Um, the, uh, uh, well, this particular meditation one class, people were very um, expressive. And one person was saying, you know, every time I, I, as soon as I started sitting to meditate, I started getting um, really hungry. Then another person said, as soon as I sat to meditate, I started getting really sad. Someone else said, as soon as I really started to meditate, I started getting really angry. Someone else said, as soon as I started meditating, I started getting really anxious that I wasn't doing it right. Someone else said, as soon as I started to meditate, I just, my body just started just driving me crazy. It wanted to move. And I realized that what was happening is that everybody was saying, as soon as I tried to put my consciousness in a particular place, whatever was the dominant alternate began to assert itself. Whatever was the the pattern of energy that was the opposite of upliftment in their particular nature uh, began to to try to pull them the other way because we have this sort of dynamic going on all the time between where we're trying to go and where we've been. The spine is the battleground, you know, between the subconscious and the superconscious. And the, the, the reality is that whatever we think, the way Swami describes it, unfulfilled desires... Um, ambitions, thoughts, actions, energy, feelings, all of this, every single thing that you do in your life it has a certain vibration of consciousness to it. And it, it lives somewhere on this spectrum between heaven and hell, between identification and understanding of yourself as the infinite spirit and identification and, and definition of self as just the physical body. You know, at, at times you, we... 
we feel that the whole world is our own and we're generous with everything we have and we or we have a, a catastrophic moment where our lives are threatened and we just feel this great freedom, who cares? A friend of mine you know, talked about just being in a life and death situation and just suddenly realizing it just didn't matter. Everyone around was so agitated and he was just completely relaxed because in that moment the veil had parted and what difference did it make? So it, that, that experience registers very high on the spectrum. And then there's other times where you know, we're just hungry and cold and there's only one apple and I want it. And it just doesn't make any difference who else is hungry and cold, it's mine. And that registers a lot lower on the spectrum. Or we have this thought, you know, if I don't have this particular relationship, I'll die of unhappiness. If I don't have this money, anything that affirms anything other. Now, that those different vibrations really register as specific levels of consciousness on the spine related to the chakras. You've all heard these words before, but it's very important to sort of see this just like it is. And each of those chakras from the base of the spine to the spiritual eye, even to the top of the head, is corresponds to some level of understanding. And every single time you do something, the energy at the vibration of consciousness with, ever, with, with whatever intensity you have acted on it gets pasted in there, right? So that day by day, year by year, incarnation by incarnation, you make a picture. You know, just like a little kid coloring. You make an energy picture that is you. That is very simply, completely objectively, there's no God punishing you, nothing. You're just creating a reality. You're creating a spectrum of vibrations that are very impersonally the sum total of absolutely everything you've done up until that moment. Your hours of meditation, your hours of of indulgence, your sleep, your anger, your joy, it's just all there. Now, it's not physical, even though we talk about it in physical terms, it relates, as Swami writes, to the astral body, to the energy self. And he, he takes us through these three levels, which are very important. And when you take off the physical body, you retain the astral body because the, the, what holds the, all those um, vortices of energy in place is the sense that they belong to me. You know, I did this. This is my attitude. This is who I am. And you don't shed the ego just by taking off the body. It takes a little more than just taking off a body in order to shed the ego. The ego exists just as firmly in the astral self as it does in the physical self. So we go, we drop the body, but that pattern is an energy pattern, and we go into the astral world, and there's the energy pattern. Just bingo, there it is. And that's who we are in the astral world. We are that pattern of energy. The astral world, as Swami writes, is more pleasant than the material world because the vibrations are more cohesive. And because everything is vibration there instead of just matter, as he says, the vibrations clump together, just as they do in the physical world in which people clump together in neighborhoods appropriate to their vibrations. But in astral planets and in astral worlds, the vibrations can't mix. Whereas here, someone whose vibration is very different than yours can totally invade your space and even take over your, you know, impinge upon your body and your spirit. In the astral world, they just, they can't blend. Higher vibrations can go into lower vibrations to uplift them, but lower vibrations can't invade higher vibrations. It's a very nice thought, right? Because this planet is really such a mix that uh, 
it's, it's, it can be dangerous and unpleasant. You know, you can just be walking down the street and be assaulted from somebody's big pickup truck with those huge speakers with vibrations that you'd never want to meet. You know, they can't happen in the astral world, right? That's nice, isn't it? Okay? But that energy pattern is there, and it makes us who we are. And those vortices of energy, they're not passive. They spin, and they, they draw energy to it. And when we sit to meditate and pull our energy up, all those vortices of energy also try to pull our energy back into wherever they came from. And this is the sort of essential conflict that we're always working with. And this is where all that we talked about of the yamas and the niyamas in the early classes, all of those right attitudes that we want to practice and all of the behaviors that would follow naturally from understanding those practices, what that does is that begins to create the right kind of vortices that we want and create the right kind of uh, energy pattern that will make it easier and easier for us to lift our consciousness. Not immediately, but slowly by slowly. And so sometimes, you know, our, our um, I often f- say that what interrupts you in meditation is sometimes just as important as uh, being able to meditate well. Because it can be very instructive when you try to lift your consciousness to find out what keeps drawing you back. I've often, myself, especially in the early years when I was less self-aware, I often found out things about myself that I didn't know. Because it wasn't until I really tried to clear the slate that something that maybe I had suppressed awareness of and just would keep asserting itself. You know, distress over something, a desire for something, an argument that was unresolved, that I didn't know was unresolved. And and so when, when you're... You, you shouldn't always investigate. It's not like every little fool thought that comes through your mind is a teacher. But, but persistent patterns are often indicative of real vortices of energy that really need to be dealt with. And so meditation is very... Um, it, it teaches you about yourself. I also often say in a meditation one classes that people stop meditating for many reasons, not the least of which is that it begins to work. That sounds so goofy, but it's true because you begin to actually get the effect of meditation, which is an expansion of your awareness. And when your awareness begins to expand, often you begin to find out things that you didn't want to know. So people will begin to meditate and what will become revealed to them is self-understanding that that has been suppressed. Vortices of energy that have been held away by other vortices of energy, such as frantic activity, overwork, constant stimulation. If you never quiet your mind, you don't really have to know what's in it. But if you start quieting it, sometimes it begins to tell you what's in it, and sometimes that's important to know. And sometimes then you don't want to know, so you stop meditating. David Key? When you talk about addressing something, do you mean literally addressing it? Um, when some There's no abstract answer to that. If you're uncertain, you should seek advice from some objective source that you think knows you well enough to give you an answer. You know, really, I I find myself that it's so easy to get wrong, to be wrong and confused about yourself, that um, it's just invaluable to have some impartial reflecting, reflecting station and to listen 
besides that, beyond that, I can't say. I mean, often you just have to experiment until you... Um, until, you, until you have enough experiences that turn out to be true and enough experiences that turn out to be false that you yourself can begin to sense what the vibration is. I mean, I've, I've spent... I, I do it less now, but I, I still do it. I spent, you know, 20 years of my life checking most of my perceptions with three or four people I trusted. Just, you know, this is what I've been thinking. Does it make any sense to you? This is what I've been feeling to do. Does it make any sense to you? And uh, a lot of it didn't make any sense to anybody but me because it was goofy. And then the ones that did make sense, I began to notice what was the consistency of it until one develops a sense of... Because you see, any of these vortices can speak with great inner authority. And it is your inner voice absolutely speaking to you. And so it has all that power of being your inner voice. But but what level of your inner voice is it? Merely because it's inside of you does not mean that it's uh, either super conscious or a direction you want to go. So, so the first thing one has to do in one's life is at least internalize your consciousness enough so that you are listening to yourself rather than just being either completely unconscious or completely defined by the world around you. Then, then the second stage is to discern among the many inner voices. And I found that to be much trickier than I thought it was at first because, because you can have so much power in something that is really subconscious and uh, it just takes a while. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you asked or not, but the question is, what do you do about something that you feel inside? And partly it depends on what level it's coming from, whether you should merely ignore it or whether you should act on it. It just seems like Oh, not sometimes, always. Yeah, because the um, uh, again, see, we have we have very linear concepts in our mind. We think here's the spine, here's my karma, right? And I, I finish this one, then I finish this one, then I finish this one, then I finish this one. It it doesn't it doesn't look like that. Your karma in your spine. This is these are. This is the gospel according to Asha. It's really important that you understand that nobody else has said this. I'm just making this up. Okay. I think your karma is in vertical stripes of extremely peculiar dimensions. Okay? You know, like this. And some parts are very wide and then some parts are really, really skinny. And so, I mean, you know, I can't draw it like that, but you understand what I mean. And you go around in a circle. So instead of passing your karma like I'm stepping up these stairs that one's done that one's done that one's done you're actually dancing around it like a maypole and and you and you so you keep passing vertical stripes but you're only seeing them at the level that you're at and you walk past it and it's about that wide and whew, that one's out of the way like this <laughs> you know and then you come around here and then bingo I'll be damned if it isn't there again and you're so certain that you saw the beginning and the end of it now Sometimes you are just going in circles, endlessly in circles. As Swami said, it can be delayed forever. At other times, you are subtly going up. And so it may look the same or very similar, but you're actually seeing it at a slightly higher octave. 
And at certain points, those ver- some of those vertical stripes do disappear. And you'll pass it for the one bazillionth time, and you really won't see it again. But it always makes me really nervous when people say, yes, I've learned that lesson. <laughs> yes, maybe you have, but even that too much of an egoic affirmation almost sets you up. It's just good to say I'm making progress. I've learned a lot. I'm a lot different than I was. I feel much freer. But delusion is, Master said, until you're in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you're not free. Because, again, Swami says in here, you know, newer, stronger vortices push the other vortices back, but they go way deep underground. And so they, as you clear the water, it kind of clears the water for these things to rise again. It's, um, uh, I, th- I sometimes think of our karma as being like paper clips buried in sand. And every time you meditate, you're passing a magnet over the top. And so all the little paper clips begin to squirm toward the top. And each time you do Kriya or meditate in some way, you know, they begin to squirm up a little higher and then the paper clips start popping out and you start learning things and having revelations and having experiences. And you actually pluck some of them out but that just leaves space for the next guys to come up. So you just have to keep, you keep passing the magnet over and the paper clips keep rising until at some point they're all gone. But you may pull them out over and over and over again and then they're just replaced by another from a deeper level perhaps with a slightly different orientation. But, and, and the other thing about that, which is very important to appreciate, they, they come to the surface in exact proportion to the magnetism you're putting out to expand your consciousness, you see? And that's the, that's the metaphysical, the paperclips and magnets is perhaps not metaphysical, but the image is the principle um, to the statement that God never gives you a test that you can't handle. Because it won't come to the surface unless your upwardly moving energy draws it to the surface. And if you're not moving enough energy up, to draw it out, it will remain buried until such time as the proportions are right. Do you see? It's a very comforting thought, even to just think of it like that. So that, that's why people say things that can sound fatuous, like, oh, isn't it wonderful that this is happening to you now? And you think it's the biggest disaster that's ever come. But it's also a compliment. Because look, you're, you know, you're ready to face this really big thing. I remember once I was... I really thought I had overcome this karma that had been so tough for me. I'd struggled with it for so long. I really thought I was free. And then I was put in certain circumstances, and bingo, there I was back again, as if, you, as if I'd made no effort and as if nothing had happened. And I was bummed, is the only word for it. I was big time bummed, and I was actually crying. I was so upset. I thought I was done with this, and here it is again. And Swami was very compassionate, but he was also just very direct. He said, well, you were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, better that you should know, because otherwise you you wouldn't put out any more energy to overcome it. You would have just thought you were free, but you're not. So, and I mean, it was a very sensible answer. So good, better to find out now, instead of living in in a false way. Yeah. So, the ink bottle has to be yeah, there's nothing in the ink bottle. All karma comes to zero. Everything is resolved. Master said all desires, even desires you have as children, have to be resolved. One way or another. Every, every, vor- every vortex of energy re- swinging around the ego saying, I need this to make me happy, 
if it's other than complete surrender to God, sooner or later has to be resolved. Now, of course, as we write in here, if you think about it like, don't think about it like that, because if you do, you will never get out of bed. It's just overwhelming. But the, 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 the um, salvation of it is, is the image of the bar magnet. You just put the whole spine in the proximity of the upwardly moving energy, or like you, you sweep the river, uh, you run enough water through the river and all the whirlpools are swept in. You never have to go and individually untangle them. You just create the magnetic flow. And there's also the grace of God and all these other factors, which is why, to deal with Devaki's question again, you, what you actually do about things can be a sort of a subtle question because sometimes you should do nothing, sometimes you should do something external. Sometimes you should focus on it and really rag it and figure it out. Sometimes you should do your best to forget it as quickly as you can. It just, uh, that's why psychic advice, and to a, certain advice, to a certain extent any advice that doesn't come from a saint, sometimes, and I, I say this respectfully, but I do say it, can sometimes be very, very, very unhelpful. Because sometimes if a psychic person looks at you, they merely see the whirlpools. They don't necessarily have the divine insight to know which one of those you should give energy to. And they may emphasize whirlpools within you that really are not going to take you to God. They're just whirlpools that are within you. And they're saying something true that may deeply resonate. But it won't necessarily be helpful in a divine sense. That's why masters and saints never work like that. They never just read you. I remember... When we first came down here, when we first moved here from Ananda Village, which is now 15 years ago, and I was trying to sort of get known in the area and just looking for ways to contact people. We, were, we have East-West Bookshop, of course, Ananda does, and it was in Menlo Park then, and they had this little reader's room off the patio back there, this little tiny place. And So we put me out there, Jacqueline and I had this great idea. We would put Asha Praver, and we couldn't think what to say, so we called me in, in, Intuitive Counselor. That was right. We just tried to find a word that would work. So I'm sitting in this little room, and I have my first or second appointment. This woman comes in, and she sits down in front of me with these big eyes, and she said, Is Walter the one? (laughs) I'm I'm so, I can be terribly unromantic in certain circumstances. And I said, Walter who? The one what? I, of course, knew perfectly well what she meant, but I just, it was such a, with all due respect, preposterous thing to ask a total stranger. I said, I don't know, do you like him? And then it turned into a discussion about why she would pay money to someone she'd never met to ask such an intimate question. And at the end of which I said, of course, you know, I don't pay for this hour. (laughs) I couldn't possibly take your money. But it was just a discussion about, my dear, get a grip on your own life. (laughs) But what happens? I mean, Walter could be the one axe murderer from her old life. I mean, he could be, who, how can someone else say that? And they could see these great vortices of energy, but who can say what the right direction is? Maybe he's the one true love of your life and the worst thing for you to do is to follow it. A saint would know that, but not a psychic. Do you understand the difference? It's very important. 
So, now don't get me wrong, I myself used to, you know, get advice. And Swami Kriyananda himself often consults people of expanded sight because sometimes it's interesting. And so, but nonetheless, it's also tricky. And if you, if you ever get that kind of advice and then find yourself running your life by it, be extremely careful. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. Be extremely careful. When you realize that you've taken somebody else's word for it and you're trying to mold your life to somebody else's idea, it's very, 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 very unwholesome. Brand new chairs. Don't do that, Eric. <laughs> you break it. Yeah, I was going to say, you break it, you buy it. Okay. better get one What were you going to say? I don't know. <laughs> we were talking about psychics, and you were going to say something else. A good counselor will help you to stand on your own two feet. A good counselor will help you develop the capacity to discern for yourself. Now, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't seek help. You should, by all means, seek help. I and mean, that's where I started. I mean, we are in a lot of trouble if we have to do this by ourselves, kids. We'll probably never get out. I, I have found it invaluable to put myself in front of somebody who I have reason to believe has wisdom and objectivity and compassion and my best interests at heart. And, you know, I don't mean that a psychic person can't have that if you know, if you have reason to believe that that person really does, or an astrologer or some such person who uses some method other than their own expanded intuition. But some people of very expanded intuition also use various tools and techniques, but you have real reason to believe that they really know you and that where they're taking you is where you are trying to go. And that the net result of the relationship is that your own capacity to run your own life increases. And, you know, and that's, that's just, again, you have to develop the discernment to be able to tell that. But, oh, how we love to be told just directly. We love the, the excitement. I do, too. I mean, I've, I've been there. I've done that. I'm tempted. <laughs> I don't anymore because I found it, it hurt me. Personally, I found that I was influenced by these thoughts and I actually would find myself, my will would be, would be warped or paralyzed by the expectation that somebody had placed in my mind of a certain result. You know, I'm maybe just speaking of myself. See, Swami, I don't find it all that way. He, he's interested, he listens, and then he goes his own way. You know. But I didn't find that. I found that it stuck with me. Okay. Any questions or comments before we go forward? Yes? So if it's the divine purpose of what goes around and comes around is that we see what we've done in the past and maybe bad karma, bad actions are being past something bad happens and then we learn. Right. Um, so why should this happen today? Because they aren't really in, in, in a position to Oh, but that's reincarnation. A baby is just, a baby doesn't have a baby soul. A baby was an old man or an old woman. They just have a teeny body. They, every, every, you are born exactly where you quit. Right, but how, how, suppose something happens to a baby because of something in their past life. Everything. They aren't really in a position to 
say, oh, okay, so this was a mistake, and now I live in well, you're not, not necessarily. So you're, you're confused by the brain and the soul. The baby brain can't say anything. The baby brain can't communicate. The baby brain can't even feed itself, right? But the soul never, the superconscious never goes under. And the superconscious of that baby is just as completely there as it is in anyone else. And, and it is absorbing the lesson. It may not find expression until that child becomes older. But that doesn't mean it's not being absorbed. And also the pattern is being set for the rest of the life so that as they reach later stages of material development, those inclinations will be set into place. You know, those patterns, new patterns will have been put into place. Um, it's, it's a wonderfully interesting way to look at everything. And it, it, it both... Um, it creates tremendous, a tremendous sense of fairness, but you have to be very expanded in order to see it. It also, for me at least, and I hope for some of you, it creates this tremendous sense of the possibility of getting a grip on your own life. Because if you really just see it, that this is just impersonal mathematics. You know, I've put a certain amount of energy out this way, I've developed a certain number of vortices in my spine. If I don't like it, create new ones. If I don't like it, run the right kind of energy through it and change them. And it might not change instantly, but it absolutely will change. And at the point it changes, you'll be just as happy as you are unhappy now. You know, it's just start now. Many times in my life, I found myself in a position I did not want to be in. Either, well, always because of my own stupidity. You know, either some external condition or internal condition. And, you know, after I finally am willing to pull the covers off from over my face and get out of bed, which eventually we always are, you know, this is... I always know that my life is not going well if I notice that it's three in the afternoon and I'm in bed with my clothes on. <laughs> this is like a clue to me that somehow things are not going as they ought to. And sometimes that has to happen several times, you know, because you just sort of, you think you're tired. You think you need a nap. But this is the third day in a row that you're finding yourself there. And uh, there's always just a desire to just stay there. But at a certain point, you get up again. And it always comes for me when I realize I got here, I can get out. And I, and I put this picture in my head. There's nothing happened here but little vortices in the spine. I made them, I can remake them. I mean, these are very dynamic ideas. These are not absolute. When you think that there's something that happened to you, your mother did this, your father did this, this happened when you were a child, you have this genetic, you don't. You have little teeny vortices in your spine. That's all there is. You know, there's no mother, father in there who did things to you. There's no, there's nothing in there. There's an energy pattern. Break it. You know, you can't break it necessarily like that, but you could break it. You made it. You can break it. It just, it just gives you this, you become entirely your own person at that point. It's a, it's a great sense of freedom. And all, everything becomes unimportant. It's just an energy pattern. Just shift it. All the hows and whys and whos and, you know, they have a modest interest. They're, they're, sometimes they give you incentive. But ultimately, you create the alternative and that's all there is to it. Does that make sense? It's a very, very challenging philosophy. Incredibly challenging. And, and we do everything we can to resist it. <laughs> yes. You're saying you don't have to really 
know what it is, what happened, what's, what triggered that thing that's been going on all your life. It's just a matter of overall magnetizing the meditation, just, just, just the pulling up is going to pull up everything, whether you know it's there. Yes, about eventually, but in exact proportion to your ability to deal with it. This is the magnet going over the little paper clips buried in the sand. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you have no concept of why you do what you do, if you don't know where your pain comes from, if you don't know where your motivation comes from, it's sometimes it's helpful even, you know, to sit with a, an objective third party and like describe the story and have them tell you what they think might be happening because you just have a little more power. Ignorance can sometimes be very confusing. But once you have a basic knowledge of what's happening, then it becomes very, the details become very unimportant because all the details are finally going to come down to the fact that I better change. And so, and then you start walking a very different line with it. And again, it's just one of these things that you feel out. You just keep doing Kriya, you keep meditating, you keep increasing the flow of energy. And then what happens is you're walking down the street. Oh, what happened to me? Fascinating. I'm very, very introspective. I'm very conscious of things. I was like, maybe 49 years old and I'm, I'm dealing with my mother who died last year and with my father in this incredibly chaotic scene that I had to deal with for a few years at my parents' house. I'm having this intense discussion with my father. I am so mad at him. He's being so unreasonable. We have this hour-long discussion. At, at about the 59th minute, all of a sudden, I just realized I was just looking at myself. And my absolute basic nature, the part of me that has driven the people even who love me very much crazy for all the years that I have lived, it was right there in him. And I never knew it. I never knew it. But I just wasn't ready to know it. You know, all these years of spiritual practice, bingo, I got it. And sometimes it happens like that. I mean, he and I had had interactions like this hundreds of times. And I had just never cleared the deck enough to get it. And, and when I got it in that moment, you know, it just a total tra transforming revelation. Right? But I wasn't ready before. Or sometimes you're just walking down the street and it's like, <gasps> all of a sudden you realize something. It's almost like the paperclip has just been moving all the time and just some little thing happened and bingo, it's just there. You don't have to seek it. So what I'm trying to say is, don't worry. You'll have to face it. <laughs> this is not a trick to get out of it. You will face it. But you can face it as a result of the upward moving energy, in which case the harmony is much greater. And also the more you orient yourself toward where you're going instead of where you've been, the more power you have to go there. And the more fun life is, the more magnetism you have, everything works better at that point. It's a balance line. Because people come on the spiritual path hoping that they're never going to have to deal with it. And I've been around long enough to watch that if you're here because you hope, it's a, it's a way of avoiding. Sooner or later, it will catch up with you. I promise. So there's just no point in doing it for that reason. You know, sooner or later, it will catch up with you. But if you, if you are sincerely interested in truth, do your spiritual practices and truth will find you. If you're doing your spiritual practices in the hope that you never have to face the truth, well, your spiritual practices will still work. It's sooner or later you'll have to face it. So it just depends on how you want to play it. What's the last thing you said there? Sooner or later you will have to face it. Pardon me? It won't work.
if you're doing your meditation out of a sincere desire to truth, for truth, sooner or later it'll come to you. Don't worry. You know, and it always does. We all know it. It really does. That makes sense? Because of the vrittis in the spine. And that's also, you have to understand, this whole story about the vrittis is why meditation is not easy. But as soon as you start meditating, you're benefiting yourself. Because the instant you try to put energy at a higher vibration, you begin to change the balance. Even just, you know, two tiny minutes of upward moving energy will dissolve all the vrittis that have less energy than those two minutes. You see? If you think of it as a river running running with lots of little whirlpools, every whirlpool that has a little less energy than the positive, than the upward flow of, of water will get drawn in. And what happens, which oftentimes spiritual people, spiritually sincere people discover, is they begin to change without exactly knowing why. But what's literally happening is that the vortices are dissolving and rearranging themselves. And suddenly, things that you were drawn to and in tune with no longer attract you. And you don't have to sort of try really hard to get rid of it. You just cease to vibrate with it. And that's why we often say, just don't worry about it. Don't worry if you have a drug habit or you like to drink or you have you know, other bad habits that aren't so great. If you can't overcome them, cultivate your upward moving energy and gradually they'll, dissolve, they'll fall away from you. There's a story Swami always tells of the man who did Kriya and drank whiskey. And he had his Kriya beads in one hand and the whiskey bottle in the other. He'd do a few rounds of his meditation practice and count them off on his Kriya mala, his Kriya rosary. He'd drink a little whiskey. It was totally contradictory. One lifts your energy up, one takes it down. Somebody said to him, essentially, are you crazy? How can you drink and do Kriya at the same time? His answer was, I can't stop drinking, so I might as well at least do something good. And this is a true story. And then one day, he was just doing it, and he looked at the whiskey bottle, and he looked at his Kriya model, mala, and he just put down the whiskey, and he never picked it up again because he'd been shifting. And just the, finally the balance, you know, it just has to shift this much to be shifted. It just has to be a tiny bit better than it was. Never give up what you consider to be a pleasure until you've replaced it with something that's more pleasurable to you. My friend put it differently. Don't even try to give up a habit until it absolutely disgusts you. (laughs) Just, you know, who cares? It's not going to work anyway. Don't waste your energy. Okay, any other comments or thoughts or questions? All right. I think I've, you know, I haven't, I don't do the chapter word for word, but I like it. All right. At the end of this chapter, they have the practice of Navi Kriya. It's on page 134, which is a superb practice for really shifting energy. And uh, for those of you who are, you know, have never practiced it, I really encourage you to study it carefully and if you need help, ask someone at the church to just sort of help you understand how to do it. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just such a simple exercise of focusing the energy and then lifting the energy and focusing the energy and lifting the energy. It, it all sounds too simple to really work, but when you come down to it, it's all very simple. You just shift the energy and you've shifted everything. All right? The sound of Om. 
You know what I suggest? I know. Um, what I suggest, if you really want to understand Om, is get the tape that Swami made of, this, of himself chanting Om. I listen to it in my sleep all night. That's perfect then. <laughs> then don't, forget, don't worry about the footnote. <laughs> he puts things in there like that because some people really are interested that way. You know, and, and other people just, so it, it depends. Um, I would like to take a break, and then we'll just go to the next chapter. Okay, let's take ten minutes. It's a little early for a break, but let's do it. Any questions or comments on what we've done so far before we go to the next chapter? All right. Um, this next chapter is really... Um, I, I've read this concept of Swamis many times, and somehow I understood it better. So than I usually do. <laughs> um, his writing is so... I, I got so excited about the way Swami writes when I was reading this chapter. I mean, there's nobody on the planet who writes like he does. And the teaching is Yogananda's teaching, but Swami's capacity to just reduce it to its essence is without... Um, there's nothing that compares to it, and that's just my, my opinion. But also... You have to appreciate that Swami fools you because it seems so simple. The language is simple, the words are easily accessible, but the concepts are so deep that you, you really do have to go back again and again. Or sometimes you read it and you really just don't have any idea what he said, even though you should understand what he said because it's just so subtle. So be kind to yourself and just get the best you can and put it away and then come back and put it away and come back. Just this very simple con concept of energy is the link between the body and the mind. I must have heard it, I can't, probably times without count. And somehow reading it this time, I thought, energy is the link between the body and the mind. And it was his simple example of why you can move your arm, but you can't move the teacup. You focus on the teacup and you order it to move, but you have no, no way of transmitting your energy into the cup, unless you have the power to transmit energy through the ether, which some people have, you know, or that you can bend spoons and so on. I, uh, some of you know of the man Marcel Vogel. He was a, a, a well-known psychic <laughs> and uh, experimenter. He actually, he worked for IBM for many years and they simply paid him to think and then they owned the fruit of his thinking. And he became well-known for his experiments with crystals and so on. He was a friend of Ananda and would visit us sometimes. And he could do many, he had a lot of things he could do. He was also a character. His wife was just a total uh, down-to-earth housewife who just happened to have this husband who could do all these nutty things. And they were at, our, at Swami's house having lunch together and Marcel wanted to show us that he could bend a spoon. And all his wife would say, oh, Marcel, not the spoons. What will they do with it after they've bent it? Don't ruin their sets, you know. She's <laughs> like, oh, please. <laughs> she sort of held it up. You know, this is a nice silver. Don't bend the spoon. But Marcel bent the spoon. He showed us he could bend the spoon. We all just laughed hysterically. But, but that simple sort of statement... And, and Swami, what he, we always tease Swamiji a lot of the times because um, his view of reality is exceedingly expanded. 
And sometimes we would say, no matter what the topic, however practical the topic might look, like how to raise children or, you know, how to get along with your spouse, he would always start with the galactic gases, you know? (laughs) And we would spend half the class dealing with the galactic gases before we'd get all the way down to here. And in his mind, it was a straight line. You know, it just seemed like in order to understand what to do here, you had to understand the galactic gases, as we would call it, and how they relate. And in this particular chapter, he's trying to explain to us the same thing. He's trying to explain to us how the cosmos is constructed so you'll know how to magnetize the job you want. Because if we understand how the universe works, then we can work it. That's why when you read so many books, self-help books and advice books and, and spiritual books, they also often say the same things. Because in different words or with different effects or different emphasis, but really it's, it's not anybody creating anything, it's everybody discovering. This is how the system works. And it can be articulated from many different angles, but still you're just trying to work with the energy. And so what Swami describes here is this sort of threefold nature of creation that that you start with the causal plane and he describes pure consciousness vibrating as ideas and then those ideas gain more exactness as they as that idea manifests into a kind of energy and then finally that energy manifests completely in the material world and absolutely everything that happens always goes through those stages. First, someone has to conceive of it, then they have to put energy behind their thought, and then if they, if they have the capacity to follow it through all the way to the end, then it manifests. But it never manifests, it never pops up in material form without those steps being part of the process. And just really sort of realizing that, we also appreciate how much power there is in each of those stages. And it, it works in every area, for example. I remember uh, uh, an experience I had early on with, uh, with David right after we got married. I was very sensitive. I, this is the second marriage I've been in. This one is gigantic and the other one was really teeny-weeny, but nonetheless, there was another one. And certain things had gone wrong in that marriage and I was exceedingly sensitive maybe a teeny-weeny bit oversensitive, but anyway, I was aware of certain realities. And one of them was that my uh, first husband, because we were very young and immature, was quite critical of me in, in the mistaken idea that that was the way to get me to be a better person. And he was also had a very strong mind, and he would criticize me with his thoughts, even when he wasn't saying anything, just because we were stupid. You know, he was a good man, but we were stupid. I was with David. This was so, it was just so, so incredible at the time. We had a little A-frame house and we had a wood stove. And we would get a newspaper every once in a while to read. And during the summer, we would save the, we had a box under the house and we would save the newspapers in that box so that in the winter we could pull them out and burn, burn them in the wood stove because the wood stove consumed a lot of newspapers. David is, and I'm extremely pleased about this, very, very exact about everything. He's very good and he just keeps everything in great order. I don't. (laughs) 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 I was like, you know, it's close enough. 
And, and we walked out of that house one day, and I took the newspaper, and I sort of tossed it into the box. It was in the box. It wasn't entirely in the box, right? But it was in the box. David just very slightly, he didn't say a word, but he observed what had happened, right? I turned to him like, you know, like a, I said, don't do that to me. Poor man. He said, what? <laughs> and I said, it's in the box. <laughs> and then I realized, you know, this is the behavior of a mad woman who will soon be divorced, a mad woman who will soon be single again. But it was just, it was as if it had happened because the thought is the, is the first reality. Now, that's a very important thing to realize because we think we can get away with a lot if we never bring it out, right? But it, it may not have as much power as if we bring it all the way into manifestation, whatever form it is, but it's an absolute continuum. Okay, now that can also be worked powerfully in our favor. You want to accomplish something, you don't know how to begin, you always begin with your internal energy about it. You begin with your thought. You start with getting it very clear and very powerful and very dynamically moving, and then you put energy behind it. And then that energy ultimately results in manifestation. And if you're sitting there and you don't have what you want, start. You know, just start. And Swamiji is very, 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 very attentive to the quality of our thoughts. And, and really, ultimately, they matter more than anything because everything flows from it. Now, again, this puts a lot of responsibility on us, but it also puts an enormous amount of freedom because it's always yours. You can always have it to work with. And, and then again, Swami adds this other thing, the missing link, the, the transition stage between the ideas that you have and the manifestation of them is the quality and quantity of energy that you put through it. And uh, Swami emphasizes, that's why on, on our spiritual path, energy is everything. Swami often comments that sometimes people appear to be quite pious and good, but as he said, sometimes they just don't have the energy to sin. It's not really that they're good, it's that there's just nothing flowing through, right? They, they might have been totally corrupted, but they never manifest it because they don't have the energy. That doesn't mean they're good. That means at first they're going to have to get enough energy to manifest something, and then gradually they can refine what they manifest. And a master used to say he came for the racehorses, and he really didn't care, and Swami's shown the same thing. He, he often has said, you know, I prefer a good fight than somebody who says yes and doesn't really mean it or have the energy to mean it. You know, it just... It, it, there's this one woman, there was one woman who lived at Ananda for many years, and she kind of overwhelmed a lot of us with her energy. And Swami just sort of commented about her one day. He said, don't you just love her intensity? Well, that wasn't exactly how a lot of us felt. But he just admired the fact that she did what she did with so much energy. And even if she, what she was doing was not necessarily what we all would have wanted her to do, at least she had got the basic system down. Now all we had to do was refine what she was doing and she would know how to do it. Do you see what I mean? When Ramakrishna, a great saint of the last century, um, he, he was an Orthodox Brahmin and he was in India and he was surrounded by other Brahmins and they were, many of them were very caste conscious and all of the rules that, you know, a, an atrophied society can adhere to. 
and a group of, of dancers and actors came. And at that time, such people were not considered to be very high class, and often they weren't. In, but uh, uh, he welcomed them, especially several of them, the, who were really very great artists, with total openness and enthusiasm, even though others who were more narrow-minded kind of held, held back. And later on, they criticized Ramakrishna for being so welcoming to these people who shouldn't have been welcomed because they were low caste or low, low in their minds. Ramakrishna's answer was, he said, at this time, and he named certain of these devotees, he said, the god they worship is art. He said, but they know how to worship. And when they substitute for art, you know, the true image of Divine Mother, he said, they'll be far better devotees than many of you because they know how to do it. They figured out how to put out the energy. Now, in our lives, from a practical point of view, it's far more important to put out energy, even for a a goal or an objective that's not so great, than to not put out energy. Because we've got to learn how how to work with energy and how to manifest, to be creative, to, to make things happen. And in all circumstances, energy, more energy is always, let me, let me phrase that differently. Um, um, Swami talks in there about uh, working with willingness and enthusiasm is one of the most powerful ways to generate energy. And oftentimes on the spiritual path, people get confused and they start defining the spiritual path as how much you can repress how much you can hold back, all the things that you cannot do. Um, Master, in his teaching and the way Ananda has always been run, we've always tried to emphasize the flow of energy and what you can get going. And, and we, we always help people, and you should think about it this way yourself, try to always think of what you can do, what you can do that's positive, what you can do to get the energy flowing. Because once you get energy flowing, your consciousness begins to shift, because energy is the... It carries it, it clarifies. Um, there was a man who, a woman once who came to me and she was in terrible trouble. Her family was a mess, her finances were a mess, everything was just really bad. And she was getting very depressed about it. And I asked her if there was anything that she enjoyed doing. And she said she liked to ride her bike. And I suggested to her that whenever she was overwhelmed and felt she just couldn't do any more, that she should just drop everything she was doing, get on her bike, and go ride it. And it seemed like kind of nutty advice, but nothing else was really working at that point. But what happened to her was she started doing it. And a couple of weeks later, when I saw her again, everything else in her life had begun to shift. Because because she was willing and enthusiastic about riding her bike, she was able to get energy flowing. And once you get energy flowing, you begin to enjoy, you realize that putting out energy is really much more fun than not putting out energy. And once you're having fun putting out energy, you can often redirect it to something that didn't look as attractive when you didn't have energy to, any energy to put out. Do you understand what I mean? So in all circumstances, whenever you feel stuck or stymied, Ask yourself, what can I do willingly and joyfully and enthusiastically? And just keep turning and redirecting yourself toward that. Eventually you may have to come back to the things you don't like, but often the way to get to them is by getting the energy flowing. That's, that's the link between the ideas in your head and the manifesting of them. And whenever the energy stops, 
Nothing is going to happen if you just sit there and keep thinking about it. Somehow, somewhere, you have to reestablish that link. Um, in his book about leadership, Swamiji says, uh, talking about the limitations of committees and meetings, and says, he said, at a certain point in the process, after you have just talked and talked and talked, he said, any decision short of absolute madness is better than more conversation about it. <laughs> in other words, you just can't, at a certain point, the ideas have to translate into energy, have to translate into action. And the, and the doing of that clarifies. He, he often remarks that energy has its own intelligence. Sometimes we want to have all the ideas straight before we put out any energy, but we can't get all the ideas straight until we put out energy. Because sometimes the flowing through of energy changes our consciousness. And then when our consciousness is more clear, then we can see the situation more clearly. So whenever you feel that the energy has stopped, that is your problem. And once you make the energy flow, I mean, I know, I'm sure everybody does it. One uh, woman who was a writer was talking about writer's block and the tendency to procrastinate. And she was saying, thank heaven for my writing deadlines, otherwise I'd never get the housework done. Because <laughs> the mere prospect of having to write would always cause her to get up and do something else. <laughs> And, and some of the advice, you know, for writer's block is write something that you can write easily. If you have to write an article, and you can't seem to get started, write a letter. Because you'll get energy flowing, you'll, you'll make a link between your ideas and the manifestation of them, and once you kind of get into that habit, then you can scoot back and do something else. Because that's how creation works. And many people who are very intellectual and very idea-oriented think it's enough to think. It isn't enough to think. Swami also makes this remarkably interesting statement about how the material world anchors creation. You know, that was such a fascinating phrase. And how it's only when it's fully manifested that it becomes completely clear. And uh, the, the, the why, it's a, why it's, it's good karma to be living in the material world. Because when things are fully manifested, they become clear, and in that clarity then we can understand them. We can be in the astral world reflecting about the positive and negative realities of our own desires or so on like that. But so, so often we have to bring them all the way into manifestation before we can tell whether we really want them or not. Swamiji says, speaking of writing again, that sometimes when he's writing, he'll spend often hours getting an idea absolutely as clear as he can possibly make it, and then he realizes he doesn't want to say it. But only when it's completely clear is he certain then that he doesn't want to say it. And sometimes in our lives we have to have the idea of it, we have to put out the energy to manifest it, and only when it's really right there, grounded in reality, can we then evaluate as to what it really means to us. Isn't that often true? And so it's very important. It's not, there's no point in which spirit stops. I remember when I uh, was living as a, formerly as a renunciate, I had life divided up into a lot of little pieces. This was spiritual, this wasn't. And, you know, certain things were, certain things weren't. And when, um, I, I, I've told a lot of you this, right after David and I got married, or shortly after, um, Swamiji suggested that we build a house for ourselves. We didn't have a house of our own at that time. And uh, I had lived so impoverished for such a long time 
and I liked being impoverished because as long as I was impoverished, I was certain that I was spiritual. It was a very strong link in my mind. And all of a sudden, we were supposed to build this house. And David had, didn't have any of these complexes in his mind. To him, it just was all energy. He, did, he never really cared what form it had or how it was used. He saw it more in the way that Swami saw it. So we were building that house, and I started thinking, well, if I, at least if we build a house, I'll build an ugly one. <laughs> I'll do it badly, was basically what I was thinking. And I wasn't aware of this inside of myself, but David was quite aware of it. And finally, at one point, just kindly but firmly, he said, if you're not going to be helpful, why don't you just get out of the way? And, and then I could see suddenly that I was afraid of the energy. I was afraid of the flow of energy. I thought somehow it, it wasn't, if I held back, I would be free. Do you see what I mean? But it, that's not true. Sometimes we have to bring it into very clear form. Because we, 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 the ideas are roiling around, the vortices are rolling around. It's a subtle point, but it's a very important one. Now the positive side of this, as I was saying earlier, is what Swami is saying in here about the more, the more control you have over energy, the more you have control you have over creation. And he leads us back to what many of you know is the energization exercises that was Mar Yogananda's original contribution to the science of self-realization. He created those. And the energization exercises are tensing and relaxing. Many of you have seen them and many of you practice them. Just using the physical body and the will to generate energy and to withdraw energy, in other words, to gain control of energy. And we teach this in meditation too. And those of us who have taught meditation too always know that that first class of the second meditation series, in which all of a sudden, instead of sitting quietly and meditating, you have people going, <laughs> and you have to explain to them that this is directly related to meditation. And, and a lot of people just can't get it. And Swamiji himself says, Unfortunately, he's found as he's traveled around the world over these last 50 years that many very sincere people don't understand the importance of the energization exercises because they, they think that it's physical and they don't realize that what the energization exercises are teaching you is control of energy. And if you can control energy, whatever you can conceive of, you can manifest because it's the link. And if you're having trouble in your life manifesting, practice the energization exercises. Very often when people will come to me and say, you know, things aren't going right, I say, are you practicing the energization exercises? And it'll feel like a non sequitur. But it's like, if things aren't going right, that means you, you're, you don't have control of your energy. And sometimes it's hard to get control of your energy, but this is a generic practice on how to control your energy, which you can then apply in any direction that you want. And it's one of the secrets of the dynamic um, power of Ananda, really, is master's energization exercises. And, and when you can reduce all of these life problems, which all seem so different, this is relationships, this is money, this is physical health, you know, this is my intelligence. If you can reduce it all down to a very simple equation, it's a question of energy. It's quantity of energy, quality of energy, and control of the energy. And if you can make it in your arm, you can make it in the world, because it all begins with this thought that you have inside of you. It's, it's very, very... Uh, the trouble with it is, it's so simple that we think it can't possibly be as simple as that. 
But it's not easy. That's the difference. Yes, my dear. Does karma control our energy to some extent? Or does karma affect our energy karma. and what we can manifest? No, you said it correctly. Karma affects your energy. Because, see, what, the, what it is is you have this clear thought. I'm going to go this way. And you're, you're heading that way. And you think you're going this way. But all of a sudden you've been sucked into a vortex of, en- a vortex of energy. And instead of going forward, you're suddenly going in a circle. And you, you're not even sure how it happened. Okay, and that's karma is some, some vort, uh, vortex of energy. You know, I'm going to be successful as a great painter and I get to here and then I have this strong vortex of the memory of lifetimes in which I tried and didn't quite make it, right? And so there's this like sort of feeling that, oh, I can't really do this. So you're halfway to doing it and then suddenly you're in a vortex of self-doubt, right? And then you have to generate the energy to push past that self-doubt. So that's your karma, is those vortices of energy, and they, vortices, and they, they suck your energy off of the track that you're going. So sometimes to reach a manifestation, it may take a lot longer than you, thought, than you think, or hope. And more energy than you hope. I mean, I've watched it so many times. You think you're going in a straight line, and then you're in a cul-de-sac. Then you don't know how you got there except something ate you on the way. So you just go back, you go back to the point when it was clear, you rev up a little more, you head off again. And it happens a few times, you begin to realize, you know, something's pulling me off. So you sometimes have to um, practice over here where it's a little easier. That's why I'm saying if, if, if every time you do it, you lose your energy, sometimes you have to develop more strength over here before you can go back and face this. And I remember once with Swamiji, he really knew that a person needed to conquer a certain field of endeavor. But they, but every time they tried, they just didn't have the capacity to do it. But he saw that they had a great deal of confidence over here. So he said, forget that, do this. And just do what you can do well where the energy flows and you'll learn more about manifesting energy because it's not so hard to do it over here. And then when you get really good at manifesting energy, you can return to this more difficult area, and then you'll have enough momentum to shoot past that whirlpool. Do you see what I mean? So sometimes, as Yogananda put it, the better part of wisdom is to run away if you know you're going to fail. (laughs) Because you don't want to just keep losing your momentum. But you don't give up the aspiration, you just go train where it's easier. That's where Swamiji says, willingness and enthusiasm give you much more energy than just rigid willpower. And somebody once asked Swamiji, how, you know, how hard should I try? He said, you should try as hard as you can with joy. At the point at which it becomes uh, oppressive, he said, back up and find a way where you can go with joy. And that's another sort of different kind of emphasis that Yogananda puts. It's not so much willpower, it's willingness and enthusiasm. And, and so you work on being willing Haridas, who's just the master of willingness at Ananda village, he's, a, he's, a, he's sort of a slightly stout person. He's not by any means overweight, but he has a stout physique. He's not thin. And once at Ananda village on an extremely hot day, he was there on a Sunday afternoon, and there's, there's two rooms at the expanding light. One is the temple and one is the dining room. And there were two sets of chairs. One set of chairs was brown and one set of chairs was yellow. And Haridas was all by himself. He was on staff there. 
and he was switching all the chairs. It was like maybe 200 chairs, and he was just carrying one and then carrying the other, and you know, it was like about a, from here to the back of the room, through two rooms, he was carrying these chairs. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm exercising. <laughs> and after he told me that this was somebody else's bright idea, and I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm exercising. You know, and then he said, but if they want them changed back, someone else can exercise. <laughs> but he was just so good at making himself want to do what he had to do. Instead of feeling, as soon as you feel that someone else is making you do it, then you start losing your energy if you're not willing. The most powerful story, which is not at all humorous, of the same thing, was told by Richard, Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand, I don't know if he's still alive or not, is a, a, a Christian saint, a living saint. I hope he's still living. Who um, First, let's see, how did it go? First, he was a Jew persecuted in Romania by the Nazis, and then he converted to Christianity in time for the communists to come and be against Christianity. So he spent many years of his life, like 15 years of his life, in communist prisons being tortured. Uh, because he refused to repudiate his faith. It's no small story. In fact, his book is called Tortured for Christ. It's just a very heavy book to read, but it's, it, he, he is a magnificent man. Eventually, um, he was very famous. Eventually, uh, somebody bought him out of Romania, and, he, and he's been in this country ever since. But he tells horrifically inspiring stories. And he talked about one particular torture that was created was they just made him walk around his little cell for, you know, beyond human endurance. He was having to walk around. It would be quite natural to not want to do that. And he, he was in rebellion and resistance, and you know, but nonetheless forced to do so. And he began to think more and more deeply, and he had such a profound inner relationship with Christ that he could really do this. He began to think more and more deeply about the constant reality of Christ and Christ's constant awareness and presence in his life and that nothing in his life happened outside of his relationship with Jesus. There was no reality outside of it. So he began to realize that if he was being asked to walk in circles, it must be Jesus who was asking him. And if Jesus wanted him to walk in circles, why was he not absolutely delighted to walk in circles in his room? And, you know, his, his, these people who are trying to break his spirit are just watching this poor, um, weakened man walk. But inside him, he's suddenly changing the entire experience. And then he describes in breathtakingly moving words what, what an ecstatic experience it was to walk for hours in that tiny cell. Now, he wasn't talking about yoga. I'm not even sure he would even approve of yoga. But he was practicing it because he was recognizing that it's all about energy and it's all about my willingness to do it. And if I do it, I have all, literally all the energy in the universe, which is what Master, Master used to stand up and say, you have as much energy and a little pinch of flesh to light the whole city of Chicago for a whole week. You know, and we're too tired to do the dishes. <laughs> right? <laughs> because we haven't learned how to just draw the energy through. And if you really think about your life, you will realize that virtually every, and I would say every, difficulty you face, if you feel it as a difficulty, comes down to a question of energy. 
that if you have the energy, you can do it. And if you feel like you can't do it, it's always because for some reason you're not able to manifest the energy because you're depressed, because you're afraid, because your body's not well, all of that. But it's always about energy. And if, if we begin to conscientiously practice the capacity to direct energy, we have the key. We just have the key. It's the universal key to everything that we desire. It makes you just get up every morning and do those energization exercises because you begin to realize, you know, this is it. If I have this, I have everything that I desire. If I can think of it and direct the energy, I can manifest it. And just really meditate on that, what that really means. It's everything we're looking for, isn't it? That's why the masters can just do it. They can do it as a miracle because they have so understood that if I think it, I can manifest it. And they you know, work it on a much more subtle level, but it's the same basic thing that we're doing. And that's how we get there. As Yogananda said when he was urging upon one of his disciples something the disciple didn't want to do, and uh, the disciple protested, well, certainly you can do it, sir. You're a master. And Yogananda thundered back as Swami tells the story, and what do you think made me a master? It was by doing. And so even though we think just washing our little dishes isn't really much related, the constant enthusiastic expression of willpower is, is the, the substance of self-realization. Okay. Will that take us to one more week? All right. <laughs> That's you. Thank you. <laughs>